Welcome to another episode of the Legal Update podcast. I'm Adam North, one of the co-founders, and I'm joined again by Ludo, the other co-founder. Thanks for joining me, Ludo. Um, today, we're going to be speaking, as usual, about one deal and one case that we've observed in uh, in recent times. We'll be talking about Stripe's valuation at $95 billion, making it the most valuable private business to ever come out of Silicon Valley. And we're talking about a case involving um, a commercial property company, a claim of around $38 million um, and potential medical exemptions at court. So if you're ready, Ludo, let's dive right in. Okay, Ludo, should we speak about the deal first, as usual? Um, I know you're a, a keen user of Stripe um, and a keen proponent of Stripe. Do you want to talk us through this valuation um, and maybe an introduction to Stripe as a company itself as well? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Yeah, as you said, I, I'm quite passionate, let's say, about Stripe just because I really realigned with what they're trying to do and their sort of vision as a company for those of you listeners who don't really know what Stripe is uh, in the basic is sort of a payment processing platform so basically if you set up a website and you want to charge people for whatever it is if you're selling products or a service you can use Stripe to collect these transactions and they apply a small fee to these transactions and that's how they make their money basically so it's a very simple to use and user-friendly uh, platform, which has grown exponentially in the past years. And as Adam said, it's recently been valued at $95 billion, which is an astronomical figure. Uh, and this is a company which has two headquarters, one in San Francisco and in Dublin. And in this latest funding round, it raised $600 million. And amongst its investors, there's, there's the National Treasury Management Agency, the Alliance, there's Sequoia Capital. There's a lot of big names behind it who yeah. obviously see potential in this company. And an interesting point is obviously that in less than a year, the company's valuation has trebled, tri- sorry, tripled. So we had in the, at the end of April, I believe, it was valued at $36 billion. And now, as we said, 95. So you can see the huge trend, uh, which is, you know, the company has come on and it's growing exponentially yeah and i think something to really unpack as well and into a yeah the rapid increase in valuation and stripes no longer kind of a, a company that's that's at the vc or seed stages we'll see a very very established business and to treble your re- treble your valuation from 36 billion dollars to 93 billion dollars or 95 billion dollars sorry sorry mm-hmm. is astronomical and i think one thing you touched on there is is kind of the the cornerstone investors that are involved these are big institutions that are kind of throwing their weight and their support behind Stripe, which is always something to look out for when a, a deal is announced. And is it it's, is it um, in kind of evaluation or, or where any share capital is um, distributed is who's involved and the bigger players in the game and the types of players that those are can often tell you a lot about kind of that commercial story. And you can really pick out some really, really strong points to identify that. Um, Kind of on that. I don't know if you have any points on that, but it's just a thought in terms of if you have your big, um, if you've got backing from big investment banks or massive private equity houses, it's often a sign that kind of there is more confidence, and that's where you're obviously seeing really, really high valuations of deals such as such as this. Um, that's something I just wanted yeah. to unpick, Ludo. Yeah, no, definitely. And when I think uh, to add to that point, we've also seen that they've recently appointed, I think, uh, 
the former Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, to the board of director, which also has uh, Diane Green, who's the chair of MIT, and Krista Davies, who is CFO of Aon. So matching those big firms with these big names, I mean, this, you know, it, it means, Stripe means business, basically. You know, they're, yeah. they're serious about where they're going. They've got a vision, which I think is such an important thing for businesses nowadays. We've even heard from their co-founder, John Collison, that they see a huge market in Europe, especially mm. for this digital economy. And some points which we can consider are stuff like fintech, the growth of, you know, the growth of fintech, uh, retail, the growth of retail online, and then also stuff like software as a service and all these new opportunities, which, you know, whenever there's growth in digital platforms, Stripe is there to back them up and to make their own profits from it really yeah i think one thing that's so interesting about stripe is it is so um pertinent across different sectors it's any mm -hmm. any kind of business or enterprise that takes any form of online payment has an option option of using stripe and uh, obviously there's as there are competitors to stripe and that that's fair enough to um think but i think you're probably more of a testament to it you're we obviously we use stripe um, for the legal update and I know you uh, always talk about kind of how user-friendly it is and there's often I guess intangibles and maybe we're seeing that this valuation is actually a reflection that Stripe is really user-friendly and that's why you're having big backing but also big take-up by their their customers kind of across the super, supermarkets, retail, Klarna, um, kind of the, the almost financing of retail company for, for customer finances um, as, is a uh, a proponent is someone uh, is a customer um that is really as you say kind of they've identified certain areas of the market but fintech almost applies across the market as well and i suppose that's essentially what stripe is it is a fintech software um that allows payments and makes their small fee in in very kind of friendly easy to use manners yeah yeah and i think you touched on a very interesting point in the sense that it's so global um you know, you have major people like like Waitrose uses Deliveroo uses Stripe, uh, but then you also get really you know small businesses. I mean, the legal up they use Stripe. You know, there's all these different um, sized businesses with different purposes. What brings them together is using this platform to make it all work. And I think that's you know the ease of adaptability. If you're considering this story in an interview, you know highlighting why Stripe is doing so well. It's just because it's so easy to use. Yeah. I think anyone can set it up. And there's no, the cost based on how well your business does, which I think is also very interesting. Yeah. So they don't charge a set fee of say, you know, a hundred pounds a month. It's more like if you sell a hundred pounds worth, we charge a little a fee on that. So it entices businesses to do well. And based on that Stripe, you know, takes their fee. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's too much more to really add on um, this mm. point, to be fair. It's it's an interesting one. It's We've banged on, and probably I've banged on in pretty much every episode about kind of the growth of tech and how lockdown has and, and how the pandemic has impacted that. And I'm sure it probably has the same. There's been a massive move to more online payments and um, card. I know there's obviously card-based payments in stores and thing, things like that. And I see this as just a reflection of that. People are getting getting very comfortable with fintech technologies that aren't provided by halifax that aren't provided by barclays that are coming out of these small startup companies um and i think it's a, a sign of kind of consumer 
opinions changing or consumer understanding is probably a better way of putting it. They kind of understand these products a bit more and feel more comfortable using them. And, and then will inadvertently people who own small businesses will use uh, things like Stripe and then it will move forward in, in their own per private life as well. But um, yeah, really interesting story. And I think something to, to really focus on that, that being the most valuable private, obviously bearing in mind private business to come out of Silicon Valley ever um stripes on on the way to to kind of big things and it maybe it'll be kind of an ipo in a few years or probably maybe less than that but uh definitely one to watch um moving forwards now we'll move on to uh the case which i kind of briefly touched on at the beginning which is um a 38 million pound claim which hasn't actually been decided i know you'll mention that but um a high court claim involving countrywide group um and they are bringing a claim against um, an individual, um, Mr. Mola, who owns Great Global Holdings. Um, do you want to talk us through kind of a little bit of what the claim's about, Ludo? Yes, probably just helpful to go on a briefly touch on the backgrounds. Uh, so as you said, this is a law, uh, a case between Countrywide, who's accusing Mr. Mola uh, of having failed to complete a £38 million deal to buy Countrywide's uh, own Lambert Smith Hampton Limited. Uh, they exchanged contracts, I believe, in November 2019. And as of yet, they have not completed because Mr. Mulder wasn't, say, keen on going ahead with the deal. Uh, obviously, Countrywide wants this deal to go through because they need the money to sort of clear some 30 million odd debt they have been piling on. And this is obviously racking up additional interest. So there was a keen interest from Countrywide to get this sorted. And on the other hand, we have Mr. Moller, who was claiming that the share purchase agreement included a provision which allowed him to terminate the agreement uh, before the deal was completed if Countrywide breached its warranties. And obviously, Mr. Moller said these warranties were breached. Countrywide said they weren't. And at the end, we've had the judge decide on summary judgment that the deal has to go ahead. Mr. Moller has to pay. Uh, they, as you said, they haven't really decided on the monetary award yet but that will be decided at a later date yeah um and i think an interesting and um, fact to kind of pull out is that mr Mueller didn't show up he didn't attend proceedings himself um <laughs> and he actually failed to instruct any counsel to represent him so uh, i think it was one of the in-house counsel for one of his companies um asked the court for for an extension and the court actually said no and i wanted to say because they uh, mr Mueller claimed it was on uh it was on for medical reasons that he was unable to, to to be present the court but i think something that's really important to bear in mind is i can't say for certain but i imagine this trial as with pretty much every trial at the moment is um uh, the hearing was um virtually it was it was via teams um or via various of the providers who can who can uh, provide the capability of providing virtual hearings and i don't i can't say with any kind of um, conviction, but I would be really interested to, if this was kind of brought to me or something like this arose, to really interrogate the problem as to see whether or not the judge considered the fact that the hearing was likely virtual, and that's and did that have a did that play a factor in him ignoring or not considering those medical claimed medical exemptions in uh, in saying he actually said it was all too easy for parties to to kind of jump away from proceedings and get away from proceedings. Uh, mm -hmm. through medical exemptions and he said I'm, I'm i'm not having it 
Um, I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts on that, but I would be really interested to see whether the kind of move to virtual courtrooms and meaning that you can attend from anywhere in the world, whether that actually had a had an impact on the High Court judge's decision. Not necessarily, obviously, the final decision in as to whether um, Mr. Mola was was liable to to pay to Countrywide, because I think that's much more of a matter of law. But as a matter of kind of consideration, it would be very interesting to see whether or not the virtual courtroom scenario that we live in now actually played played a played uh, had an impact or uh, on his thinking. Yeah, it's. I mean. You know, you find that as a judge, I can imagine, sure, if there's serious health problems, that's a different matter. But I'm assuming they had some knowledge of what was actually going on. And especially when you say, you know, it's virtual, so that aids the whole attending, you know, there's not as much effort required to it. So I think the judge must have seen through it and felt like this judge, this case had to be decided and wasn't really keen on Mr. Muller's you know, tactic, let's say, to avoid it in a way. But it's also very interesting because, uh, you know, being unrepresented on the one side, you have Countrywide, who's instructed Slaughter May, who in turn have instructed one Essex court to advise them. And on the other side, you have Mr. Moller, who's unrepresented. And whenever in a case you've got a party without representation, there's always some thought that has to go into the way the, the firm or the council approaches the case because usually judges tend to be a bit more lenient mm -hmm. on unrepresented parties. So that's an, an element which, if you discuss the story of considering in general this whole point, is very useful and shows you're thinking beyond the usual considerations, but also in a strategical point way about how to approach different cases depending on. Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting one. Obviously, my go to would be to kind of challenge why is he unrepresented? And it sounds like it's just kind of inferring from the story. He's obviously, he's the owner of Great Global Holdings. He was looking to complete a $38 million transaction to buy another company. Um, it's, it doesn't sound like Mr. Muller doesn't have the means for representation. It It's yeah. either kind of not paying attention, not taking the, the court system seriously, which I cannot, cannot imagine a judge would be uh, particularly inclined to, to, uh, to side with. Um, and kind of making a mockery of the whole thing, unless there are obviously, if there are kind of much further um, medical reasoning that aren't known to us, and for some reason that he was completely unable to, like, and rendered in, um, incapacitated. But it doesn't sound as if that was the case exactly as you said. Kind of the whole balance, the balance of justice is is an interesting thing that I would unpack on this, um, yeah. and kind of what are the reasons behind the the imbalance of justice. Um, but yeah, it's quite, it's an interesting one. And I think it's more of a theoretical kind of consideration about the right to a fair trial and, um, and which is obviously much more relevant in kind of criminal proceedings, but um, it's definitely something to, to kind of pay attention to that goes outside of the commercial sphere or even necessarily the legal sphere of a story of kind of considering, considering the, the wider um, characteristics of, of the situation that's involved. Yeah, and I guess one last potential point on this is just about how even if the case was decided by summary judgment, we still they still don't have a clear indication as to how much Mr. Moller will have to pay and how the judge has left this to the agreement between the firms, let's say. So that will be an interesting commercial drafting exercise for the lawyers involved. And it's something that 
if you're discussing these sort of cases, you know, it, it, it's not like once the judge has said the, the decision, that's the end of it all. It's, it goes beyond yeah. to that sometimes, and then you have to apply your own commercial thing. Yeah, to, no, I, I agree. Exactly. I think there's also um, a point that we raised last, uh, either last week or the week before, that of how practice areas kind of fit, fit together. And this is a, a standard one again of mm -hmm. a commercial contract has been drawn up or I suppose a corporate contract has been drawn up between these two parties and it's ended in a dispute because of the terms of the contract and, and something that wasn't disclosed or was disclosed. Um, and it's something that I think if, if you can highlight that in an interview or an application or kind of the interconnectedness between practices, it's not like you're a corporate lawyer and all you do is deals, deals, deals. Because whilst your focus very much is on deals, you've got to think at the other end of that deal, further down its lifeline, if something goes wrong, a disputes lawyer is going to be picking it up um, and picking up kind of your drafting. So it's worth bearing in mind that whilst you're a corporate lawyer and your focus is closing the deal or getting the best deal for your client, it's also about obviously on the balance of kind of protecting their assets and protecting their um, interests um, in a way that so disputes won't arise or can't arise or you're protected from them. Um, and I think that's something that kind of understanding the interconnectedness of different practices within law is something that's always a valuable point to be uh, to be drawn up and that practice areas don't work in silos. They refer work across to each other all the time um, and they're in contact all the time about the same client, but maybe it's a different problem. Yeah. Um, and understanding that it's a really commercial way of thinking because it starts to help you to to kind of think of law firms as businesses um, and uh, how they work to be more efficient together and, and, and through those means. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. That's a great point. Well, I think that wraps us up for another week. So thank you to everyone for listening. And remember that you can always find um, more stories like this uh, with probably a bit better and a bit stronger analysis than we can do by our fantastic writers um, on the legal update. If you go to uh, LinkedIn, you'll find us or Instagram to uh, to sign up and, and get a subscription. Um, obviously, at the moment, we're still running for university students are two months free at the moment. So you can find more details of that on our Instagram page um, and reach out to us to uh, find out a bit more. Thanks again, Ludo, for joining me. And this has been another episode of the Legal Update podcast.